You're listening to the Ambition Incubator podcast, and I'm your host, Deirdre Morrison. My thing is helping people understand how our brains work so that we can be better and do better in any area of life that's important to us. So as well as bite-sized brain science, I'll be bringing you interviews and advice from experts and guests who specialize in working with entrepreneurs and leaders to help them explore potential, possibilities, and ways to be more effective. And the best bit? We can start right now. Does your habit of saying um and ah put you off the idea of speaking in public, going live on social media, or generally getting in front of people? Well, here's the thing. It might actually be beneficial to your listeners. I mean, who'd have thought, right? When I was offered the opportunity to speak to Professor Valerie Friedland about her work in the field of linguistics, I was never going to say no. And it was every bit as interesting as I'd hoped. Our conversation begins with a lot of ums and ahs. Of course, we will find out what the technical name for this is, but we'll also find out why they can actually benefit us more than we expect. And anyone who's faced with the task of presenting or public speaking will be surprised and maybe relieved by the research that Dr. Friedland shares with us. We'll also look at the idea of generational speech patterns and what we need to think about when communicating in important interactions. And we'll also get to talk about the first book on my wish list for 2023, which is Dr. Friedland's soon-to-be-titled new book on everybody's pet hates of language. So um, let's crack on. Now, Valerie, thank you so much for joining me today. I am delighted to have an opportunity to talk to you about one of my favorite subjects, actually, which is language. So we're we're going to start with something um, and see where it goes, just the idea of the filler noise. Could you tell us, first of all, what a filler noise is so that we can make everyone feel really self-conscious? Absolutely. And everybody will notice them for the rest of the day after we go over this. Well, filler noises can be a couple of different things, but the ones that most of us think of as fillers are the ums and uhs that dot all our linguistic landscapes. Those are a little different than other filler words that we think of, like like or you know or huh, which are actually words that we recognize and sort of can define. Um and uh are hard to define, right? They're a little different in the way that they work. In linguistics, we call call these types of noises filler filled pauses or or filler words, meaning non-words. So it's a little bit funny how we like think of them. They've also been referred to historically as hesitation markers. Because what they seem to indicate is that we're thinking really hard about something or we need a minute, linguistically speaking. So that Mm. is sort of a a really rough and ready definition of filled pauses. Yeah, that that hesitation pauses. I'm interested in that term, actually. Um, I was speaking to a German speaking coach, actually, Britta Wenske. And from what I remember about the conversation, she was talking about you know, almost being afraid that if we let a silence emerge in our speech pattern, that somebody was going to take our opportunity to speak away from us. And I'm just wondering, is is that something that you think is valid? Is that something that plays into this, this idea that we're going to lose out if we go quiet for a moment? Well, that's actually a really interesting thing to note because there have been two major theories historically about what filled pauses do for us. One of them has taken a very cognitive processing approach to what their their work is, and that's uh, the view that they're actually a symptom of 
harder cognitive choices. So when we are doing a lot of uh, heavy cognitive retrieval, so our brain is working really hard on figuring out either how to construct a sentence. In in linguistics, we call that syntactic parsing. Um, Or when we're trying to come up with different word choices, and we call that lexical decision-making, that would be when you're coming, you're choosing between words that you might have several different alternatives for, that it actually takes some seriously hard thinking, right? Um, uh, Or when there are words that you can't quite remember because they're not very familiar or you don't use them very commonly. All of those actually require more thinking than either answering something with a yeah or um, using a word that you use all the time. Those are Mm -hmm. times when we tend to use ums and uhs. And this has been empirically proven. And that's known as the symptom view. So that really has nothing to do with your listener and everything to do with your own thinking. Hmm. Alternatively, and actually in a complementary way, there's been a second theory. Uh, and this is because, well, we could cognitively retrieve and pause without filling them with an actual audible signal, right? If it's just about cognitive retrieval, why don't we just take a silent pause? There's nothing that hmm. says you have to, you know, um and uh your way through those problems because a silent pause would give you the same amount of time to think. Well, what if we pause with a um or uh, not because we're thinking hard only, but because we want to let our listener know that we're thinking hard because if we didn't, they might jump in and take our turn. So that's known as the signal view. And that's exactly what your German colleague suggested. And it's very, very accurate. We have a lot of evidence from research-based studies that show that this is in fact something that we do. If you look Mm -hmm. at the research on people that give lectures or give talks or telling stories, we find that they um and uh less than when we study people that are in conversational context. So when there's a back and forth, we are more likely to um and uh. A good explanation for why is because we want to make sure we're indicating to our listener, hey, I'm not done yet, back off, right? Don't take the floor. And this is because Mm -hmm. we have something in linguistics called turn transition cues, which are little hints we give each other when we're talking that you're about to finish your turn. A lot of times this is when you're in person uh, looking or eye gaze that you give someone that says, okay, you're going to come up next. It could be a head nod. It could sometimes even be gesturing where you point to that person or say, what do you think with an actual question? But the key way we do it is either lowering our pitch as we get to the end of our statements or stopping right? Just stopping talking. And so a pause, if silent, looks very suspiciously like just stopping talking for the end of a turn. And for that reason, we think that people tend to do it. Another really fascinating study on that front is with people with autism spectrum disorders who tend to have more difficulties with conversational and pragmatic language. They tend to use ums and uhs less often than people without ASD. And this suggests that it is tied to this pragmatic interactional need that we have rather than simply cognitive processing because they're also doing heavy cognitive processing. And if that were the only reason, we shouldn't really find that kind of difference. How fascinating. Um, when you were talking about the the pausing and the um, people who are actually speaking in, in a, a speaker-like setting rather than conversationally, it seems then that um, their clarity and their, I guess, their preparation for this is probably playing into it as well. Is, would that be fair? They know what they are going to say or 
Well, in terms of, so say if you're going to give a talk or an interview and you're a little nervous about it, uh, the chances of you umming and eyeing is probably greater than if you e- either had really prepared over and over again so you had almost memorized what you were saying and you wouldn't have to be having that kind of processing. Or if you were less nervous, perhaps, because then you're more just worried about your performance and we we become self-conscious and sometimes monitor our speech, which makes us a little inauthentic in our delivery. Um, mm. But in terms of you know what it's signaling about a speaker, I actually think it signals something very positive because what it's saying is this person is actually doing something that requires a lot of integration of of new or interesting material versus just relying on something that they could do very easily without a lot of cognitive processing. So it actually speaks highly to the amount of effort that they're putting in the conversation. Uh, but whether we necessarily interpret it that way, I think is is a different story because the the reputation of um and eyeing is not a good one in public speaking, even though it's really not based on any scientific evidence that it's negative. In fact, there is fascinating research that not only points to its value as a signal to listeners that you are not done with your talk, there's also a lot of research that suggests that it not only helps with a speaker speaking, but it actually helps a listener's processing. We find that... Um, we have greater greater neural response when we're listening to someone that's using um and us than when they're not. We also have better memory retrieval of words they said and stories they told. So really, ums and us actually help mm. us as a listener as well. But whether we want to get rid of them or not is really a, a, a question for what your purpose is in whatever context you're going into. And preparation certainly helps because you're not needing to make decisions as often. If you know what you're going to say, Mm -hmm. because you've practiced it, you will have less in the moment cognitive processing for it than if you just sort of were spontaneous. Does that make sense? It absolutely does make sense. And it's something that I have casually observed, I guess, when I'm having conversations with people that, you know, they will probably speak a lot more fluently almost when they are very passionate about the subject, when it's something they know very well, when it's it, it just flows from them. And as you say, it's when people are trying to think of what they're going to say next or how they're going to construct their sentence or their argument or their pitch or whatever it is, that it tends to become a little bit more hesitant. And you've either got the filler noises or you've got the Christopher Walken style of almost lopsided delivery. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) I do. I do. I do. And what's also interesting is the research on the the option of not filling your pause. So just taking a silent pause suggests that that actually gives off uh, a little more discomfort than when you fill your pause. So people, when asked to rate speakers that insert filled pauses or silent pauses, people think the one that has the silent pause is a more anxious speaker. So perhaps filling Mm. your pauses is better than not filling them at all if that's going to give off the impression that you're anxious. So I think, you know, if you've ever listened to someone who pauses almost unnaturally, where we start to feel a little uncomfortable, it probably would be less so if they had a little um or uh in there. So I think there is a lot of naturalness that we get from adding some filled pauses to our speech. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And I think that that's one of the things that we touched on just before we started recording was that a lot of people do seem to be put off the idea of making um, some kind of 
speech or doing talks or doing live pieces because they're worried that they will have these filled pauses, as you call them. So what you're actually saying here is that really people need to worry maybe less about that than they currently do, because nobody expects or maybe they, they <laughs> maybe they, maybe we just expect of ourselves this kind of polished presentation that isn't entirely the way somebody would speak naturally. So you've you've either got polish or you've got natural. Exactly, exactly. Now there are of course differences in the limits to this. So we tend to filter out a lot of filled pauses. So in a study that was done in the 1990s where they took different levels of umming and uhing. So they called them, some of their speakers heavy ummers, mm. and then they called others um avoiders, meaning they hardly ever relied <laughs> on ums and uhs. What they found was that if you had some versus having more than that, people didn't really notice that much that difference um, as, as I um. But if it's unnaturally too many, and we've all heard those speakers that seem to um constantly, that can be distracting. And that definitely mm. seems to take away from the message. So one thing to do if you're worried about your own ums is to record yourself in some spontaneous speaking context and determine whether you're a really heavy ummer or uh or, or if you don't use them that much. And as long as you're using them naturally, that actually adds and it doesn't detract. When we hear people using them too much, that can be a problem. And what's really interesting is if you mm. listen to recordings of presidents or Supreme Court justices, people that we think are really eloquent, they actually often use quite a few of these markers and we don't even notice it because we're listening to the content of what they say. It's when your umming and eyeing becomes distracting to the content that you need to worry. Other than that, using them here and there is, is actually not a problem at all and probably beneficial. Mm. And of course, a lot of these public speakers like presidents and whatnot, they're actually reading their speech. They're not, you know, necessarily delivering it off the cuff. Say they've got auto cue in a lot of instances. But going back to the too few and too many, or, you know, just right and too many, is there a measure? Is there a guide for what too many ums per minute is or, you know, too many ums per speech? That would be a great thing to if it existed, but I don't know of it. Um, you know, <laughs> there now you're going to hear every um I make. I, I think the trick is when you're umming constantly, so that every few words is an um. That's too many, but more naturally we um when we're constructing a sentence. So ums that come at the beginning of a sentence are, are actually pretty common, and it's because you're doing the syntactic structure building. And the more complex mm. that sentence is, the more likely it will be that you'll um before it. And one um per sentence is probably not that big of a deal, especially that our sentences when we speak tend to be longer. When you're umming mm. between every every phrase in that sentence, then it's going to feel like it's too much. So I think the best indicator is really to listen to yourself in a recording or have someone else listen to you if that's something you're concerned about. If someone's ever mentioned that you do it too often, or if it's something that you're particularly worried about because you feel like you do it too often, that's something you should record yourself in and determine. But no, there's really not a good indicator. I think because par partially it's going to depend on what you're saying, who you're talking to. You know, President Obama, for example, mm. used a lot of us. He was a heavy uh speaker, not um as much as uh. And he actually, I think it was nine per minute at one point he was recorded doing. So you can actually Google it and, and there are um and uh counters. Mm. 
But people thought of him as a very eloquent speaker. So I think because of the other features he used in his speech, the tempo, the pitch, we didn't notice those so much. Whereas people that have more of a monotone delivery, we tend to get a little bored with their delivery. So we might pay more attention to their ums and uhs. So it's a really hard answer to give some firm count because it's it will depend somewhat on your qualities as speaker more generally. Hmm. But I suppose it wouldn't be a bad idea then to to listen to someone like President Obama or some maybe someone that you enjoy their speaking style and take note of what they do and how many ums and ahs they've got. Absolutely. Just for comparison. Absolutely. Just for comparison and to sort of see where they're using it and how it, it doesn't interrupt their flow. Uh, because I think the bad rap that us and ums have is when we're not paying attention to other features of our speech that make us more eloquent speakers. So yeah. when you're really working on becoming a good speaker more generally, those are things to pay attention to because our nervousness and our um, sort of unfamiliarity with that speech format might then put more cognitive processing effort into it, which then would increase our ums and uhs. But if we become more comfortable by practicing and paying attention and understanding other features of good speaking, we won't lean so heavily on ums and uhs to begin with. Okay. I don't know if you're going to be able to answer this question, Valerie, but I'll throw it in there anyway. Um, I'm just wondering, is this a linguistic thing that we have had historically, or is this something that we've developed in the frantic modern age? That That's actually a really good question. And we I can't answer it exactly simply because we don't have recordings, right, from antiquity. But we do find some written forms of um dating back to the 1600s. So, for example, mm. um, there was a text that had a hum, which was used much like an um. And we actually find uh, ums used in Dickens' work. So it's been yeah. around for a long time. I would imagine that the ums of antiquity were there, especially that there is a lot of similarity across Germanic languages, which English is a Germanic language, where they have the same ums and us. The form is identical except for slight variations of the vowel, which suggests we inherited this feature from Proto-Germanic, since all the languages that are derived from Proto-Germanic have the same features. So this would suggest they've been around for centuries uh, or millennia, but the fact that they weren't mentioned in oratory um, writings from the Greek and Roman antiquity when a lot of those writings were done suggests that they didn't bother people or they weren't noticed as being problematic, but probably just a natural feature of speech. So can I answer exactly when they came to pass? Probably not. But the fact that we find them in all Germanic languages and that they're shared the same as English, not only with um, an uh and an um, but with very similar structure as one is a vowel only and the other is a vowel plus an M sound, that suggests that they are derived from the same origin, which would have been thousands and thousands of years old. Mm. How interesting. And of course, this uh, idea of things evolving brings me to another topic that I know you talk a lot about, which is teen speak. And we're veering slightly off, slightly off track here, but I do love this topic as well. And I suppose those, the idea that, you know, there are generational differences in the sort of words that we use to, as fillers, uh, and the, the ones like like and literally and so on that we have these days. I suppose what I'm coming to now is the idea that we still have generations of pretty formal speakers in the business world and in mm. these interactions that we would have in that domain. 
and much younger generations of people coming through who don't really speak that way anymore. Is is this a, a clash that can be avoided? Is this a is this somewhere we need more understanding of each other's ways of of speaking? Well, it's both a clash and a place where we need better understanding. It's no different, though, than generations before where people spoke differently as young speakers and that clashed with what were were the conservative norms of the era. So a lot of things that we say today are already uh, more informal, for example, than the speech of the 1930s and 40s. In fact, if you just look at broadcast speech or movies, they had a mid-Atlantic dialect that was uh, this very popular, very posh kind of British-inspired speech. And, And dropping your R's at that time was considered very uppity, right, and very posh and elegant in the way that, you know, very eloquent and educated speakers spoke. Well, no one drops their R's today in America, at least, right? In British English, it's very different. The opposite is true. But what's become popular now is a completely different kind of of general American that's very different than the British-inspired Middle Atlantic. So if you think about time and language, as a rule, the new generation is always doing something different than the older generation. And every single time that we come into contact in business contexts, or even as parents and children of teenagers, we find that we have this clash. One of the benefits of my field is I get to learn a lot of hip new words, although it makes my daughter cringe when I try to use them <laughs> as having a teenager. I'm not allowed to use emojis. Yes, no, it it does. It definitely doesn't ride well with those kids. But what we see is those people will be the people that are the bosses in 30 years. And those features, if they survive, which a lot of them will, especially like, like is here to stay, like it or not, those will be the features that then are the norms and the things the young people are doing will be cringeworthy at that time. So it's just this endless cycle. I think what's Hmm. changed today is the pervasive of how we hear each other. So social media and the internet and this really high degree of contact that we have with each other across miles has changed the nature of of the transmission of linguistic variants. And it also maybe Mm. makes it more noticeable because when we're talking to each other face-to-face, which was more the situation before, we get more involved in um, understanding each other and empathizing and hearing each other in terms of of our thoughts and our our desires to you know have an interactional positively good in uh, conversation when we're just listening to someone over the internet or we're sort of talking to people we don't really know we tend to notice their language perhaps more than we would when we had a more interpersonal aspect to it so i think it's just becoming mm. more salient to us not that we're actually changing more things i mean if you look back to old english and beowulf which none of us can read i think you could say that language has changed a lot over time and i'm sure a lot of those parents in the you know middle english era were rolling their eyes as well at the, at their teenagers um so yes like mm-hmm. is here to stay and if you look at studies on the use of things like like you'll find that while they certainly are used at a much higher degree among young speakers they are also used in increasing amounts among older speakers which suggest that they will be the norms of a new generation it's when you find a really sharp divide between what young people are saying and what older people are saying with no crossover that's when it's more questionable whether that will be a feature that survives over time 
So like for mm. sure has made inroads and will probably be the speech of our future. Other little, you know, things that people say like bro or bus and bussin, which you hear young people say today may not make that leap because they're just not picked up as often. You know, they're the ones that our parent, our teenagers cringe when they hear us say today. <laughs> yeah. So I guess listening to what you were saying there, it seems like not just is there that desire to create maybe a new identity or to to define that generation with its language um there may also be the idea that we need to come to these intergenerational conversations with a positive intent um if we want them to succeed certainly in a business domain absolutely absolutely huh teenagers hey I know. Well, and you know, I think the problem is that we want our kids to succeed, um, or as teachers or professors or employers, we have certain ideas that are very prescriptivist in how we want people to talk. And and certainly there is a place for that. I mean, obviously, if we don't have any constraints on how people talk, it's going to be harder for us to understand each other over time and distance. But I think our fears are often unfounded and and how uh, one word here or one word there is going to do that. And we also tend to ignore the fact that a lot of what we say was at one time not considered the height of linguistic fashion either. But that doesn't mean that um, young speakers going into a professional context should just say whatever they want because you cannot really determine what the impact of that will be on the other side if you're not careful about the things you choose to say. So what I would suggest is when, when young speakers go into an interview or someone is a heavy like user in other conversational contexts, that they do moderate that because we do have studies that show that people do not perceive like users well in business contexts. Um, so if you use like in an interview, it probably does affect the way that you're perceived. However, the same study showed that when the interviewer and the person being interviewed were having a casual conversation about other parts of life, not necessarily tied to work. When like was used and it did increase in use there, it wasn't perceived as negatively. So clearly we do need to know a little bit about what's appropriate and what's not in professional context just for self-preservation. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that sounds like it makes good sense, I have to say. Pick and choose your words carefully and your filler noises equally carefully. Exactly. Yeah. Lots to think about there. So <laughs> I guess <laughs> just to to start to wrap up, Valerie, um, the idea that we've got people who beat themselves up over their use of filler noises, they can probably take some consolation from the fact that it's not the end of the world we all do it. And as long as we're conscious of it to some level, but not overconscious of it, then we can actually still be clear and good communicators while using them. Would that be fair? Absolutely. And, you know, as a linguist, I think my approach would be that actually ums and us have a huge amount of literature and research that support their use as being a very positive and beneficial feature of language. In fact, all languages have them. And that, that type of universality tells mm -hmm. us they serve a really important function. As a speaker, though, that is also aware of the way that uh, people take what we say, I would say if you feel uncomfortable with it, then 
it's understandable given the climate that we have been raised in, in in terms of what's accepted and not in public speaking. And you can certainly try to pay attention to your use of them. But just know that this is really a problem on the side of perception and not a problem on the side of reality. So there is no evidence to support that those features are negative, um, nor that they hinder comprehension. In fact, the opposite is true. They seem to help it. So it's really just a matter of, of our opinions and attitudes. And those are not necessarily things we always want to follow blindly. But that said, if you're looking for a job or if you're trying to impress someone and you're uncomfortable listening to yourself in a recording, getting a sense of how much you use them is a good way to get a, an idea of where mm. you use them and how you might alter your pattern if you like. Mm. So before we close, I would love to um, ask you just about, I know you've got a book coming up and we'll sort of direct people to your your mailing list for that and so on. What's the, what's it? Do you have the title? Can can we know the title? Well, the title, so I, my editor and I are actually just in the middle of, of uh, discussing that because I, we have different opinions on which one we want. But the title is going to be something along the lines of, I hate when you say that. And every chapter, um, it's coming out with Viking Penguin Press. Every chapter is going to be some speech habit like um. In fact, um is one of the chapters in the book. Like is another chapter. A singular they is a chapter. Uh, the ending ing like walk in walking is a, a chapter, a lot, a lot of different chapters. Every chapter dives into a particular speech habit that hasn't received a lot of love and tries to redefine that feature in our minds by delving into its history. How did it evolve? Where did it come from? And it's valuable at function today. And it's actually a lot of fun. I, I kind of have a, a sort of voicey approach which, with a lot of jokes, but I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be a fun read. And, and almost any feature that you've wondered about will probably be one of the chapters. So it will be coming out in uh, 2023, it looks like. But if you uh, go to my website and sign up for my mailing list, I can, I'll be sending out uh, notices when it's coming out. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to put that in the show notes because I'm definitely going to be on that list. And I love the title. Oh, I don't... I'm so excited. <laughs> Absolutely love the title already. I think the title's great. That, that's my vote. So we'll see. We'll, I'll, t I'll let you know in a couple months which one won victorious. But I, it's been a really fun book to write. And um, to all the questions, it's based on all the questions I've been asked when I give public talks. People always come up to me, no matter what the topic of my talk was, and they say, oh, my gosh, that was so exciting. How about this? How about that, right? They ask me about these other features and they usually ask because they've encountered some, you know, experience with it on their own. They have an employee that uses it a lot or they have a teenager at home or it's something in their own speech that someone's called them out on. And mm. I thought, well, you know, there are great stories. These, these features have great linguistic histories. I mean, there's battles, there's war, there's sex, there's everything you could possibly want in the history of these features. So why not share that? And um, it's a really fun read. So I, I'll be excited to share it. Oh, I am so looking forward to it. <laughs> thank you so much for telling us about it, Valerie. And thank you again for uh, sharing your experience and your linguistic knowledge with us today. And I think putting everybody a little bit at ease about our collective use of filler words. So thank you. Sure, that was great. It was great to be here. Thanks. You're still here? Great. Look, I know there's a lot to choose from out there, so thanks for flying with Ambition Incubator Airlines. And I look forward to seeing you on board again soon. 
Seriously, though, thank you for tuning in. My guests and I love hearing about what inspires you on the show and what advice has made a difference in your life or work and what you'd like more of. So get in touch. If you want to know about my other work, head over to ambitionincubator.com for details. And don't forget to hit subscribe for more great interviews, advice, and bite-sized brain science every week. Thank you.